Welcome to Fire of Genius, a podcast dedicated to all things intellectual property presented by the Indiana University Mauer School of Law's IP Theory Journal. My name is Chris McMillan. I'm a 3L at Mauer, and I am the audio editor for IP Theory. Today's podcast will be co-hosted by one of our 2L associates. Hi, I'm Megan Wheeler. I'm a 2L associate on IP Theory. I'm very excited to be here. Today's episode is part of a special series of podcasts recorded in connection with an intellectual property workshop held in honor of Mauer Professor Marshall Liefer. We called the workshop Marshall Law. The proceedings are being released as a special volume of IP theory that combines essays and podcasts from prominent IP scholars who contributed to the workshop. And on this episode, we are pleased to be joined by Professor Isolde Jondreau. Uh, Professor Jondreau, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you. I'm professor at the University of Montreal in Canada. I teach intellectual property, but I focused particularly my interest on copyright law. And that's why um, it was a pleasure to be part of this special colloquium in honor of Marshall Liefer. Awesome. So let's go ahead and get into questions. Megan, would you like to start? Yeah. So um, your presentation was about the relationship between the United States and Canadian copyright law. Could you briefly summarize uh, Canada's position on the global market for copyrighted works and how does that play into Canada's ability to leverage international agreements? Well, I think the, the situation in Canada is a bit particular in that it is a G7 country, but its attitude towards intellectual property, including copyright law, looks very much more like uh, the attitude of a developing country or a country in transition. We're not big exporters of copyright material. We are net importers. And therefore, before any right is afforded to anyone, there's always a balancing judgment that must be made in order to think about the the value that this is going to create and whether this value will stay in the country or flow out of the country. I do have one quick follow-up on that. So I lived in Canada for four years, and my understanding is that uh, Canada also is very protective and encourages Canadian authors to publish work. So for instance, I know that there is some sort of law regulation that on Canadian radio, a certain amount of it has to be Canadian songs. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Of course. Uh, This is not something that is part of copyright law. It's part of broadcasting law in general. And indeed, uh, there is the the system that we call Canadian content rule, CanCon, which imposes a certain level of Canadian content on radio broadcasters. There's also a rule concerning French content on radio. So this plays with the Canadian content rule as well. And of course, you're right to uh, think immediately about this situation because If you have a system that requires a certain percentage of Canadian content on the airwaves, well, of course, it means that uh, the royalties that flow from this use will remain in the country. Okay, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, So back to your uh, presentation, Um, you said in your presentation that after the TRIPS agreement was signed, Canada became more independent from the US when it came to copyright law. Could you just briefly explain why that is? Well, I think what we've seen since the 1980s is that there are two sources of amendments to the Canadian Act. International sources, that is in in the following, in the wake of uh, international agreements and national sources where we have our own national agenda. And right after the TRIPS agreement, 
The next big step was indeed uh, in 1997, uh, what we've called phase two of the Copyright Act revision. And this was really following a, a purely national agenda. Um, so you said that uh, NAFTA and TRIPS were negotiated at the same time and that their IP sections are largely similar. Are there any distinct differences? Yes, of course, there are uh, quite a lot of differences, actually. Uh, when you look at NAFTA, which, of course, applies to a much narrower group of countries, you see, for instance, that the rental right that you see in TRIPS, which applies to computer programs, sound recordings, and cinematographic works, in NAFTA, there's no mention of cinematographic works. You see in NAFTA a reference to the use of the appendix to the Berne Convention, which is an appendix, an appendix dealing with the, um, the reproduction and use of translation, translated material for uh, developing countries. So this would have been, I suppose, uh, included in light of the presence of Mexico, but uh, you don't see it in specifically in TRIPS. NAFTA provides no specific protection for performers, unlike uh, TRIPS. Uh, it refers to the Geneva Agreement of 1971 for sound recordings, uh, which is not in the um, TRIPS agreement. And there's also no reference to the Rome Convention, which is mentioned in the TRIPS agreement. And also more as a general issue, NAFTA doesn't have the system of most favored nation. And then um, you discussed moral rights in your presentation. What significance do they play in national agreement intellectual property relations? Well, I think we've come to a point where moral rights are deemed to have been adopted everywhere. Um, at the time of NAFTA, there was still no provision on moral rights in, in the U.S., during those negotiations. So the NAFTA agreement specifically uh, said that the obligation to implement Article 6 bis of the Berne Convention that deals with moral rights does not apply to the United States, but it does apply to Canada and the US. However, when we look at uh, the CHIPS agreement, there is a general rule that the TRIPS agreement does not apply to the burn, does not apply to uh, moral rights. Interesting. Um, so why is it so significant that the United States influence on Canada is limited by the TRIPS agreement? Well, uh, the influence is limited by the TRIPS agreement in the sense that since NAFTA as a regional agreement, we simply had uh, the very last one, the, what we call Kuzma, because each uh, country names it according to its own uh, initials. So we call it Kuzma, Canada, US, Mexico agreement. And this agreement is basically the only regional agreement in which uh, the US is necessarily the dominant uh, voice. So the TRIPS agreement dilutes U.S. presence in the international negotiations. Anytime you are opening up to more and more countries, you're diluting the strength of the one that is the strongest in a small group. So that's why I made that mention. Right. So I guess to kind of tie those questions together, 
Um, that limited influence of the U.S. on Canada, is that particularly relevant to uh, how moral rights have developed in Canada? I wouldn't say so, because we've added uh, moral rights for performers, for example. And uh, this was something that was done because we we became member of the um, WTO and WPPT uh, agreement. So, and, and these agreements are international agreements. They're not regional agreements. Mm-hmm. So since the Kuzma is a very recent agreement, I think it will take time before we are in another situation where U.S. interests will be uh, played out more forcefully for Canada. Okay, so moving forward in time, um, you also talked about the CETA in your presentation, which was an agreement between Canada and the EU in 2016. Um, What would you say uh, were the most notable points of that agreement? And uh, why is it significant that copyright was not included in the Comprehensive Trade Agreement? Well, that agreement, as you said, was between Canada and the EU. And it's very obvious that for the IP chapter, uh, the most important uh, requests were made by the EU Uh, with respect to pharmaceutical patents and uh, with respect to uh, geographical indications. It was surprising not to see anything really special about copyright because the EU has a term of protection of life plus 70, whereas Canada as its basic term of protection still still has life plus 50. So you could have expected that this would have also been part of the agreement with the EU. Its absence uh, may mean that it was traded against the uh, GIs and the pharmaceutical patents, or that it was not seen as something uh, very interesting on the part of the EU, maybe because the EU was aware that at the same time, uh, the TPP was being negotiated and there, the uh, the rule of life plus 70 was being pushed uh, very aggressively. Okay, so talking about Canada's shorter term, um, how do you think that affects the market for registering copyrighted works in Canada? You did say at the beginning that Canada is more, ma- mainly an importer of copyrighted works. Is it largely because of that shorter term? No, it's not. And um, perhaps I should mention that we don't automatically register copyright in Canada. Uh, We do have a um, registration system for copyright works, but it's purely voluntary. And so this is not uh, something which is of of great concern. But for our our works, I think uh, the rule of the shorter term is meant to drive the country that has a shorter term to want to have a longer term because it would benefit its own nationals in the countries abroad. However, Canada, while it exports some of its uh, copyright protective works, uh, does not export in value that many compared to some other countries. So uh, the rule of the shorter term means that uh, since we import a lot of foreign works, Uh, we therefore are making sure that we're not paying uh, for the use of the extra 20 years. Yeah, and one quick follow-up to that. Does the shorter term at all affect your your country's ability to leverage um, any kind of international agreements on IP? How does it affect Canada in the international community as far as these IP agreements go, if at all? 
Uh, I don't think it plays a major role because uh, in any event, we are going to have life for 70. We already have some of the uh, different uh, applications of life plus 70, but we don't have any life plus 70 in all of the rules that are strictly based on a person's life. So a rule that is based on uh, publication or creation uh, has now a term of protection that was increased by 20 years in light of the Kuzma uh, regime. Canada negotiated in, uh, in Kuzma that it could wait until January, 20, uh, January 1st, 2023 to implement the rule where it is immediately associated with the life of the author. So um, in your opinion, what does the forecast look like for U.S.-Canada relations when it comes to copyright and intellectual property at large? Well, I think the future will basically look at what will happen with the internet. So uh, my impression is that uh, we will be moving slowly, but definitely in the direction of, of trying to find a way to ensure that works that are being communicated on the, on the internet bring in a value that does go to the copyright owners. And this is a movement which is uh, not, which is not uh, unique to Canada and the US. I think it's a global trend. And because the internet is a very uh, global phenomenon, uh, it's very normal that this process take on a long time because you have to meet the expectations and the negotiations of so many diverse countries. Do you think the internet is going to be more of an equalizing force for having more uh, international agreement on copyright law? I think it, for today, I would say it is the ultimate challenge because it forces us to think outside of strictly national constraints and national legislation. So I think that is going to be a very important step and all of the hesitations and uh, objections and at the same time also all the, all the requests for uh, remuneration on the internet, uh, they will be played out in light of very international considerations, in particular in light of developing countries, uh, in light of um, how we actually manage uh, the flow of money, uh, how we identify works uh, that are being used. So it's pushing to the international level many issues that for a long time remained at a, at a strictly national one. All right. Thank you. Those are all the questions we have for you today. But we want to give you the floor if you have any final thoughts or anything else you wanted to say. Oh, well, no, thank you. I, I just think it's a, it's a very interesting uh, dynamic um, to see how two countries are reacting to the same situation. And I think one thing is certain is that in Canada, we always uh, pay close attention to what is going on in the US, not just from a legislative perspective, but also with respect to court cases and research activities that are undertaken uh, such as those of the um, Copyright Register or uh, the um, 
um, Legal Information Institute, which has recently come out with a, a new document. So these are all informations that we like to follow uh, in order to know how to position ourselves. Thank you so much. All of us at IP Theory are very grateful that you would come on to the podcast today, and we appreciate your time. That is all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Fire of Genius. You can follow us on Twitter at C-I-P-R-Mauer-I-P-T-H, or reach out to us on our website at iptheory.indiana.edu. Thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in again for our next Copyright Colloquium interview episode.